This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 15th of September. And as always, I'm joined by my uh, voice coach today, uh, Dave, who will instruct me on how to pronounce my English syllables clearly and distinctly. Hi, Dave. See, that was so much smoother. <laughs> it's so much work. And now, now all of our audience can actually understand the garbled mess that, uh, that you, you mention every single uh, session. But no, welcome. This is our ongoing saga towards containers and Kubernetes. And uh, today we are, I think, I don't think there are any public service announcements, so I think we are diving straight into the the micro world of microservices, are we not? Yes, just as a reminder, uh, last week we had a news episode, but before then we had three episodes talking about containers um, and all the nice things around it. I'm not going to repeat it because it's going to take another three episodes. But the whole idea is, uh, as the title of the episode says, Intro to Containers and Kubernetes. The idea is to end up with Kubernetes. Um, maybe it's going to happen today. I know last episode we finally mentioned Kubernetes once, I think. <laughs> so let's see where we get today. Oh, such clickbait. <laughs> such clickbait. It's how it works. But yeah, we ended up with uh, the usefulnesses of containers and why they had some advantages on top of virtual machines. And then, of course, all the things become complicated. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that I found as we were, because we've been living in, a, in some sort of variety of a microservices world. Um, certainly, you and I in our, in our professional careers for some time, at varying degrees. And so the, the, the kind of concepts and the topic overall, I'm reasonably familiar with. But it's always useful to go back and just kind of reset some of your expectations and just kind of refresh your memory on things that have uh, changed and evolved over time, things that you maybe took for granted. And uh, one of the, the interesting things that I found when going back and looking at this is if you start to dig into microservices, unsurprisingly, the topic itself goes way, way back, and we'll we'll get to that at some point. But the, the thing that I started with was there's actually really no single definition for microservices. There are, you know, a number of different viewpoints, and there's sort of a number of characteristics that frequently are are thrown out some of them align, some of them don't align. And I, I thought that was kind of one of the interesting things as you as you start to get into this. For something that's been around for a a long time, there's actually quite a few different sort of definitions or variations on definitions as to what what makes something a microservice or a microservice architecture. Yeah, when you say a long time, I mean, it's not that long. Theory. In theory, I mean the days that C came on the scene. That's when we started thinking about black box programming and API connections and loosely coupled stuff. But if you really look at deployments, practical uses of uh, any kind of microservice architecture, I, I would almost say that only became practically possible with the advent of public clouds and things like that. 
So maybe. I, I think, like all of these things, it depends on how, how far back you want to go and draw the, draw the parallels. The, there's a, an info, info Q article that, that talks about the, the parallels between um, you know, microservices, um, sort of the service-oriented architecture, which is not the same thing, and the original sort of object orientation model from the 1970s um, and the and the actor model that that came kind of soon after that mm-hmm. which you know those those kind of things are all very closely related and then yeah. if you look at sort of the the unix philosophy of you know do one thing do it well loosely coupled components that each have their own specialization like Microservices is essentially the the modern day implementation of the Unix philosophy, potentially depending on how you how you uh, how you believe that. Yeah, but I think then there's this uh, distinction to be made between microservices arch- microservices architectures. Yeah, I'm already stopped, not no longer dictating correctly. Uh, <laughs> service architectures in hardware and software, because the things you're mentioning there, the agent uh, principle and stuff like that, those were originally software principles on making your software loosely coupled, and that is indeed a microservices architecture. That's mm-hmm. basically what you do. The difference that I was thinking about is deploying it practically across a microservices infrastructure. So sure. when you say there's different ways of describing of or, or or understanding the term microservice architecture, are you talking about this distinction between software and hardware, or are there other things in the way as well? So I think I'm more thinking about it in terms of the the software aspects, because I mean, depending on how you uh, we can disappear down an entire rabbit hole here, but depending on how you how you think about these things and how you define them, you know, all of a, a bunch of different services running on a mainframe versus uh, a bunch of services running on multiple independent, you know, network connected pieces of hardware. Technically, inside the mainframe, there's a whole lot of network internet con- interconnectivity between processing boards and storage boards and all that kind of stuff so and that that's a whole different crazy yeah. set of rabbit holes that you could dive down but you're still even in that concept you're talking about multiple processes running more or less independently from each other scalable independently from each other while if yeah. you look at the agent actor kind of paradigm in programming that can still be a monolithical application but yeah. constructed in a way that for the developer the software person it becomes a black box programming paradigm where you can actually just uh, agree a certain API interface and I'll program my thing, you program your thing, and we will be able to communicate because we follow these principles. But yeah. for me, I don't see that as microservices architectures, it's microservices are software design perhaps. But for me, architecture, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I, I grew up putting racks full of servers and connecting cables. So as long as I don't have more than a handful of hardware devices, I don't see it as a microservice architecture. And I agree, that is uh, limited thinking on my part. Well, I'm I'm sure we both agree on that. (laughs) 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 So, all right then. So we've we've said that the the concepts behind microservices or the concepts that inspired microservices have been around for a long time. I do agree, though, with you, which, which is 
the way that we think of microservices today, or the way the majority of people think of microservices today, is a more recent sort of um, construct. It's the it's a very very late nineties, early two thousands sort of um, approach that you know start started with the uh, again in my mind the sort of Unix Unix like pipelines, RESTful services connecting uh, you know, with each other to perform a a larger function. That's you know in my mind at least that's where that's where a lot of this sort of uh, sort of started, and you saw um, when was it like early. And nothing really changed for probably best part of of ten years between that kind of late nineteen ninety nine, early two thousands until sort of two thousand and what was it two thousand eleven I think, where uh, a number of folks used the term microservices to talk about uh, microservices in Java and. Um, people at where was this? Uh, yeah, microservices in Java, the Unix way, which I find hilarious. And you know, you you see terms, you see people trying to bring back terms that have have previously been used, like again, SOA or service oriented architecture, and trying to describe this as fine grained SOA, which to me is another hilarious. Um, battering around of different words. So I think that we you see you see the evolution of microservices over the last certainly over the last 10 years is is where that's become far more far more prevalent and far closer to the the definitions and the the, the types of microservices that you know we know today. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I mean, I'm still thinking about the software angle you were mentioning before, and the moment you talk about uh, the loosely coupled stuff, I'm, how important was REST API for that? Just uh, the idea of REST, because before REST we had SOAP, which was very clean, mm. but it wasn't really the the most, well, I mean, it was the first attempt at doing something, yeah. having that agreement, that uh, contract between black box uh, software things it worked reasonably well but it always was limiting in a way that it didn't lead to this microservices uh, revolution <laughs> using yeah. hardware today uh, i think the rest api is also dating from around i'd say 2010ish that's also when i started yeah. hearing about it and it started becoming yeah. developing and for people that maybe don't know the acronyms, I'm not going to explain them because I don't know what SOAP means anymore. It's about serializable something, something. But REST kind of made it even more abstract where you don't have to even know <clears throat> what the other contracts was and you can still kind of communicate between each other. It's more complicated yeah. than that. But it's just basically today, if you look at anything that's scalable, um, multi-node, multi-something, uses network sockets, it's pretty much, if it's somewhat recent, it will use a REST API, which uses the same kind of uh, uh, protocol as your web browser. It's just get, put, delete, and post. That's the four verbs. 
and it's all centered around that. Uh, if anybody wants to have a full detailed episode on that, let us know. It's something I do I don't mind talking about. But uh, again, you can't have the hardware microservices without the software part, right? So that's what I was thinking yeah. about the, the REST thing, because I remember that was about the time when I joined Hortonworks, I think. And that's when I, with the whole Hadoop thing, I kind of fell mm. headfirst in the REST world. <laughs> the yeah. world of REST. So, so just just for just for giggles, uh, SOAP is actually simple object <sighs> access protocol. And then simple. rest is representational state transfer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I, th I do agree. I think rest rest or and, and rest then evolved into um, rest like or restful yeah, um, sort of uh, approaches as well. But I do think that 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 sort of that approach was in my mind as well. Some of the thing that really started to accelerate. Uh, what we what we now now see as being pretty common. So we've got you know we've got this idea of these these microservices, and we've talked around where some of the concepts came from. Perhaps it's worth sort of talking about actually you know what we what is what is a microservice? What what do you what would uh, what would make sense as a microservice in an application? Um, for me, it would be a well-formed class because if you create a class in software, then that class should be atomic, uh, responsible for a certain thing, and have I'm going to say as little as possible interaction with the outside world. It should be able to do whatever it should do itself, as long as it's only changing things that it's responsible for. So if you have a, a class that takes uh, product item inventory things, it shouldn't do anything with uh, order forms. That should be a different class. Now, at some point, it becomes too much of a detail, too much of granularity. And you always have to look at this with a certain point of uh, pragmatism, practicality, I mean, having a million different classes all on their own little Docker container doing, I don't know, three calls per hour to a CPU, uh, that's not good either, of course. So again, yeah. you have to kind of look at a kind of a macro class, perhaps. But if you go away from the, from the software architecture, that's where the practicalities come in. And basically, as long as you don't have to touch network, to go to a different database or something like that. I tend to kind of group things together, but it really depends on the application, on what you're trying to build, on what you're trying to do. Because again, if you're building something like uh, Facebook or Twitter, it's going to be a totally different kind of architecture com uh, compared to um, uh, e-commerce web front-end, for example. Because the one is totally, I'm also I'm going to say social graph-based, which is already distributed by nature in the data set itself. Mm while the e-commerce site, your order forms, your products, yes, there is a certain microservices availability there as well. Definitely, if you're going to go across uh, geographies and things like that, but it's a lot, it's a different kind of uh, place to look at and your architecture should also reflect that somehow. Yeah. One of the, one of the sort of guiding principles that I think it was Google was suggesting is that um, each of these microservices should should have or should need a, a sort of a development team of no more than sort of 
between three and ten people. And if if it if something requires more than that sort of number of people, then it's probably of a certain level of complexity that it would make sense to uh, potentially look at splitting it up. But like like all of the things that we talked about earlier, there's there's no single definition for microservices. There's no one one of these things is not more or less right uh, than the other. It's just how you interpret microservices from within your particular needs or requirements. Yeah, you could kind of uh, flip it around and say, what do you expect that the microservices approach is going to add to your environment? What kind of benefits you do you think to have from there? If the benefit is indeed to have at most three to five, because I think 10 people, 10 software developers, that's a big team. <laughs> if you want to go mm. to like three to five people maximum on a certain part of this solution, then that's one way you can subdivide the whole application, whatever it is, into groups. But if you're looking more on a hardware level for results, things like uh, autoscaling, if you want to have something that's round robin, autoscalable, more people come, I spin up 10 more nodes doing exactly the same microservice and now my capacity is larger, that's a different way of looking at microservices, the same architecture, but your expectations, the benefit you're looking for is different. And when you're looking at spinning up round robin uh, processes, it has nothing to do with the number of people working on the software at that point. So for me, it's more of a looking that way. And it also means that the whole DevOps idea makes a lot of sense here. Because if you don't have DevOps, but you have operations and software development totally separate from each other, and they both get the instructions, make this uh, microservices aware, whatever I call it, they will do two entirely different things. The operations guys will make a monolithical thing that they can easily duplicate, while the software guys will make the software part of the uh, the service, uh, multi-service uh, microservice fabric, sorry. And if you don't have the DevOps, and I think also that's why DevOps and REST APIs and all of that thing started running from the 2010 somewhere, that's where it actually started coming all together. And DevOps was a very important part of that as well. Yeah, no, very much so. I think we've, we've seen, so you, you touched on things like the, uh, like, Auto scaling, well, I mean, scaling as a whole, whether whether automatically yeah. or not, the the ability to um, sort of subdivide your architecture or your software infrastructure, if that's even a word um, or a term, but yeah, subdivide whatever it is that that makes up your solution or service or whatever into smaller components that can be scaled independently that that then gives you um, a huge amount of control over how you how you choose to uh, deal with things like performance bottlenecks or um, you know changes within the way that people are consuming your service that may put uh, load in different areas um, and allow you to adjust for that accordingly yeah, I mean, it's even worse, you know, deeper than that. I mean, the only way you're able to scale parts of the application from your front end to your back end to whatever is by decoupling them. Because if 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 scaling the, the front end would mean you have to as big scale the back end as well automatically, mm. that wouldn't work. That would be expensive, unwieldy, unpractical. So the whole idea of having 
this uh, possibility of scaling parts of the application to respond to demand is only possible if you have the microservices uh, architecture in your environment or else, yeah, it, it's not going to happen at all. Yeah. Is it, I mean, I think it's worth talk, spending just a little bit of time talking about some of the the dark ages of microservices, I, as I kind of think of them, which was the, the time where, I mean, a lot of technologies have sort of buzzword bingo splashed all over them. Microservices is definitely uh, one of those candidates. And I think in the, not the early stages, because people were too afraid, but the sort of the the mid sort of cycle of adoption of microservices, I don't know about you, but I saw a huge wave of organizations desperately trying to get on the microservices bandwagon with no idea, no clear idea or understanding of what they were doing, how they were doing it. And they were just, you know, making all of the wrong decisions at all the wrong times just to just to to jump on the microservices bandwagon. You know, their their you know, CXO or some some exec in their organization you know, put the mandate forward, right, we need to move to microservices because that's how Netflix and Google exactly. and, and you know, all these other, and Amazon are, are all doing it. So we need to do that too. And I, I certainly remember a variety of different situations where, you know, you'd get one one smart person in an organization that, that really understands microservices quite deeply and has been bought in for that purpose but has no understanding of the way that the rest of the, the software works. And you, you have, you know, entire teams of, of engineers, uh, developers sort of just looking at, looking at this and scratching their head and like, but, but our, our software doesn't work that way. And, and sort of the, the lack of understanding of how, like, this is not a, this is not a lift and shift. This is not a take what we do today and move, you know, just, shoehorn it all into a microservices world like it, it's not it it's not that sort of approach so i saw a lot of uh, people spending huge amounts of time uh, getting this pretty wrong and pretty wrong for a, a, a you know fairly sizable period of time spending <coughs> some fairly sizable money on on this kind of uh, this sort of folly i I think for the most part, we're out of that dark age of microservices. Mm. I think, uh, well, yeah, for, for the most part, like there's still, there's still organizations that are going to be, going to be causing, causing trouble. But I, I think the, the terms behind it, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more education. There's a lot more knowledge out there. There's a lot, um, you know, a lot more of the established patterns for developing microservices exist now. And, I, I say this as being uh, the the least developer-like person, uh, certainly on this podcast. Um, but from what I see happening in in the industry, I think that I think that's the case. I think it's very dependent on geography. If you're looking at uh, US, Europe, yes, but even in Europe, Europe is a very big place. There will be spaces where this is more. It's all about. You know what you know because your neighbor is doing it. If you see your neighbor using hedge clippers, you use the same thing because you know how to work. And you're right. I mean, the dark ages, as you, as you call them, it's an interesting term. Um, 
a lot of people, non-technical people, and even technical people sometimes, when something goes wrong, when the company is going under, sales are down, application doesn't work, crash, whatever, problem, fill in your problem here, they then look at these unicorns in the industry. And again, during the 2010s, that's when the the, the big tech uh, web 2.0 companies came up, the Netflix, mm -hmm. the, the, the Googles. And oh, they're using microservices and it's working fantastic for them. Look at how much money they're making. So that must be what we need to do. And just like when people go to cloud and with a lift and shift or start using machine learning with the hopes that that will solve their problems, they're tools. And we've had episodes before we talked about tools don't solve your problems. People solve your problems. Make sure the people have the right tools. That's the second thing, but that's the second thing. It's not the first thing. And if you're going to say, okay, I've got this monolithic application, let's uh, cut it in four parts. And now we have four of them. Well, you know, have four times as much problems because yeah, you're totally right. It's not a lift and shift. If you're going to go from monolithical to microservices, the first thing you will do is not refactor your application. You will pretty much rewrite your application yeah. because I mean, you may be lucky that your monolithic application was written according to all of the object-oriented programming practices that were out there since the 70s, as you said earlier. Yeah. Very unlikely. But if you have that, then your rewrite could be reasonably fast. But don't expect that because I've developed software. I've tried to do it the right way. But it's always the, the quick way and the real and the good way. And you sometimes go one, sometimes go the other. It's human nature, I guess. So do expect a pretty hard rewrite and doesn't have to be a bad thing because rewriting a software means looking at old code, refactoring code, making things better, learning from the past. If you are moving also from on-premise to the cloud or to a container or a platform, it makes sense to refactor, rewrite your software into that container, microservice fabric again. That's why we're talking about all these things in this series of uh, podcasts, of course. But yes, it's definitely not lift and shift. Lift and shift never solved anything. Ex the only thing that changes is where your invoice is uh, coming from. And probably yep. the also one thing, maybe just to add in here, don't go microservices because you think it's going to be cheaper. It's probably going to be more expensive in the end because it's going to be more complicated. You're going to be using more moving parts. You need more servers, more hardware, small ones perhaps, but probably more. It's a flexibility. It's a growth uh, possibility offering solution to go to microservices. And that's where you have to see the additional revenue or advantages or whatever you quantify it there. That's where it comes from. It's not a cost-saving operation at all. Yeah, you're right. But there is there there is also yeah. I should stop there. But there <laughs> there is also um. So yes, microservices like a move to microservices or a microservice architecture in itself is not a cost saving exercise. That being said the ability for you to independently scale certain parts of your application infrastructure should make it more efficient longer term but for like, growth that's yeah for growth um for for continued um yeah continued scale and going forward from that point yes yeah. but 
the, the, the amount of time that it takes to move from one of those things to the other, assuming that you have a, a previous iteration. Like if you're starting off with microservices, then obviously yep. you're like that, that's, that's a, a, different, uh, a different use case entirely. Yeah, but still see, it's not a cost saving, it's setting up for more revenue. So in the yeah. end, hopefully, if everything goes well, you will get more benefits. If it's money or not, I don't want to, I want to spend too much on the capital side. But it's not it's not going to reduce your cost. It will enable you to get more benefits. But that does mean that your business needs to be viable. Because if you don't have a growth path, if you don't have a business plan to grow into the future, moving to microservices isn't going to automatically grow your clientele. It has yep. to be in lockstep with each other. It must be a reaction on that. And if you're small, you don't necessarily need to go to microservices. It may still yeah. be beneficial. And if you're starting from scratch today, please try to do it in a microservices fashion. It'll be beneficial if you do happen to grow afterwards. But if you're on a declining path, don't go to microservices in the hopes that that's going to reap benefits for you. That's basically yeah. what I try to, to say. Yeah. So uh, on the, the flip side of the coin, there's a really, I think there's a really interesting movement that's been happening probably only in the last two years where organizations that have been you know, relatively successful um, building their stuff from the ground up as microservices have also now started looking at the um, at building variants of their their same software as single binaries and or, or monolithic kind of iterations. So having essentially both versions available. This is like there's been a few a few articles around this. There's a, been a few sort of um, like things like KubeCon presentations and blog posts and all that sort of thing. But it's it's on the one way it sounds and feels a little bit like a regression, but on the other, it's giving people a different path, um, a potentially a simpler path to start consuming some of this software, some of this services in a way that is definitely, yeah, there's no doubt it is less efficient overall, but it allows people to pick something up, start playing with it, start using it. It still scales. You just add another, you know, another instance of this single binary slash monolith somewhere else. And, you know, the scaling and everything else works just as the, the microservices method does. It's just that you, you know, obviously you've got more overhead. Obviously it is less efficient, but it, it sort of, we always see things kind of happening in in sort of in cycles in some ways. I think this is just I'm not sure this is a perhaps a cycle or a waveform or who knows what shape this particular thing uh, this particular thing is. But it's it is interesting that the the overhead of microservices is less about the deployment and it's more the, the human capital cost to run it. It's the uh, the complexity of running a large microservices-based mm -hmm. architecture infrastructure, the depth of knowledge you need to effectively run one, to effectively scale one, to understand, oh, I'm seeing this behavior. How do I make sure that I scale the right part of my microservices architecture? And, you know, going... It's almost coming full circle. 
back to a sort of a, a monolith or single binary approach makes that that conversation far far easier so i think there's 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 more interesting things to to happen in this uh, in this area and in this space I think that's something that's need to change in the future as well, because one of the biggest issues you have today when you're going microservices is your network fabric, your network infrastructure. Because obviously mm. with a monolithical application, you put the binary somewhere, somebody else built a server for you, put Linux on it, you put your application there, you click run, and it does its thing and you're done. The moment you start loosely coupling things, uh, it's, it already starts with multi-threading. If you do multi-threading, you have to think about pinning process threads on certain CPUs yeah. so that they're close to these uh, memory bars, depending if you're Intel on IMD hardware. And see, you, you start hitting multiple layers of this whole uh, architecture you're deploying at that point. And that's also what I mentioned earlier, the DevOps thing. You need the dev and the ops to look at these things because your infrastructure and your software will both be microservice C <laughs> and will need to really match on top of each other to make it successful. And you need to have intimate knowledge of uh, network interconnects. Uh, if you're in the mainframe world, uh, same thing. You need to have that thing. You're in the HD, HPC world. You need to know about uh, uh, things like, uh, how do you call it? An extra fast networking, Mellanox, forget the word. Infiniband, uh, Infiniband uh, networking, Infiniband. things like that. And again, it's more knowledge, it's more components. Typically also, if you do microservices architecture, you'll use frameworks. You'll use framework for this, framework for that, framework for this. And they will more or less interconnect or interoperate. And the more or less is a thing that makes it hard again, because that means you need to have people that understand more than one thing, are willing to do more than one thing. You need a kind of flexibility in your team as well to have all that running. If you don't have that, if a small team that three-person uh, operation doing something, you might not have the, the bandwidth, as you say, to cover all of that. And in that case, going uh, yeah, more monolithical in approach may definitely make sense. And the one thing I, I you see this a lot, but that's uh, maybe a bit of a sidestep, is in dev test environments. You want to have the multi-service, multi-fabric thing definitely in your production, if you're big enough. In your mm -hmm. QA steps, probably as well, because you want to test on the same kind of hardware as a production layer will be. But for your developers, if I've got my laptop and I'm coding and I want to just see if it works, I can't put 23 laptops on my desktop and see if it works. You need to have a more of a monolithical approach there. And uh, there's a lot of the modern toolings out there that indeed have a shrunk down all functionality mm. capability enabled, but it's not a hardware level microservices architecture, though it is still a software level architecture. But all the software yep. components kind of got munched together again. Yep. So um, I think the probably the 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 place to wind this up is um, perhaps if you share that uh, that link, the uh, the quote in the the info Q article, which I think sort of for me at least really cements this. Um, so it's a paraphrased quote, but you know if you can't manage building a monolith inside a single process, what makes you think putting a network in the middle is going to help? Like microservices are not a um, they're not a silver bullet. They're not going to magically solve everything. Um, it it is a it is a a complex world. Yes, it's something that we are you know, getting to the point where we understand in more detail, and 
you know, more and more organizations are adopting it. But things do get complicated very quickly. You do need some some pretty uh, some pretty serious talent uh, on on staff to be able to roll these things out and continue to develop and operate them. And doing all of this without some form of orchestration to drive it all forward uh, is is going to be nigh on impossible. I think it's fair to say so. Uh, I'm, I'm going to contradict this a little bit because I think it helps hugely if I'm trying to do something and I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. Add some network stuff in there and nobody will notice me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Maybe. My boss doesn't listen to my podcast anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah. Anything else from you on, on the glorious world of microservices? Nope, maybe just a foreshadowing that uh, next episode will probably go in a bit more depth on the actual technology you can actually use to make all this burn. But as always, theory before practice, and that was basically the intention of this episode. So with that, uh, Andal, take us away. All right. In that case, then uh, that is all the time we have today. You can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps. Maybe maybe a few more Patreons will help us finally talk about Kubernetes. We are on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, all the YouTube things. Uh, please go to www.roaringelephant.org for, uh, for a link to our Patreon page and for more information about the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag and send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is Dave. And my name is, I guess we're not doing anything funny anymore, Jon. <laughs> <sighs> and we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.